Heavenly Father, we have gathered here because you have saved us purely by your grace through the vehicle of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. None of us are here by our own merit, certainly not our own good works or our own righteousness. We are here because we are sinners recognizing our desperate need for grace, and we have put all of our trust and all of our hope in your Son. And in that, Father, with the time that you've given us here on this place, we we ask that we would be filled with a deep desire to serve you, to sacrificially serve you as workers now in your kingdom. We pray, Father, I, I would ask this morning that you would not only make this call to work in your Son clear, but give us that desire to do it out of the gospel love that we've experienced in him. Father, we want to be a people who rightly strengthen one another, encourage one another, and equip each other for the work of ministry. But we don't want to do that because we're told to. We want to do it because we want to. I pray, Father, that you would change the commands and the duty to choice and desire so that each of us would see the great role we have in equipping this body and your church throughout the world for the work of Christ. Our time is limited here, Father, and with that time, we want to redeem it. We want to be faithful workers in your kingdom. And so I pray for each of my brothers and sisters who have gathered here this morning that you would use this passage to cause them to reflect deeply upon the degree to which they are rightly growing in their faith, being encouraged in their faith, and being equipped, and then using that to grow and equip others. Um, Help us to think specifically about this church this morning and then your church throughout the world, that we might be the most effective witness for the gospel and bring you the most honor and glory possible. Uh, We praise you for this gathering and this chance to, to sing and to read and to pray and for this moment in the service to, to proclaim the gospel from Acts 14. I ask, Lord, that you would bless my words and bless the, the ears of those who will receive it. For your glory in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, Acts 14, if you're not there, uh, please go there. We, uh, we're closing out that chapter today, which means we are officially one half of the way through the book of Acts. Um, we're somewhere around week 33, 34, 35, I'm not sure where, uh, but we're keeping a decent pace. Um, Acts 14, if you, if you read through it this week, it closes with Paul and Barnabas being back in Antioch of Syria, where they started their missionary journey about two years prior. They started probably 44, 45 AD, and it's going to close up back in Antioch in 47, somewhere in that area, maybe 48. Um, they... they they flee Lystra and they make their way down to Derby, which was about 60 miles southeast of Lystra. And then we're told this, look at verse 21, that while in Derby they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. So they planted another church. They're, they're church planting everywhere they go. They preach the gospel, they make disciples, they plant a church. Um, and from Derby now, Derby is only 150 miles from Tarsus. Now Tarsus is Paul's home. And from Tarsus, you can, it's a little skip over to Antioch, Syria. They can be back at the church that sent them. It was the easiest route for them to get back to Antioch of Syria. So what's amazing to me here, and I hope for you as well, is that they don't do that. Um, Paul has just been stoned nearly to death. And instead of them saying, you know what, let's go to Tarsus, get you rested up. We'll go back to Antioch and get new orders. They double their efforts, they turn around, they leave Derby, and they go back and they retrace their footsteps, visiting every single city and every single church where the Holy Spirit had established a body of believers. So instead of going from Derby to Tarsus back to Antioch, Syria, they turn back around and they head north again. They go back to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, Pisidia, revisiting all these places before they head south, making their way to Perga and Attilia and then back on a ship to Antioch, Syria. Now, once they get back to um, Antioch and Syria, they gather the church together, and they want to tell them this good news. Look at verse 27, the latter part. They, They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith 
to the Gentiles. So if you remember, two years prior, the church in Antioch, they were fasting and they were praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke audibly and said this in chapter 13, verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for what? For the work which I have called them to do. For the work that I've called them to do. This was the missionary work that we have seen for the past two chapters. It took approximately two years. They spanned over 1,500 miles, visiting multiple cities on the way, planting multiple churches. And they say that through it all, their declaration is, in verse 27, that God opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, thousands, possibly tens of thousands of Gentiles who either had never heard of the name Yahweh or the God of the Bible or had a vague, a vague understanding of it, actually heard about Jesus Christ, the God-man that we saw from last week. And they heard the gospel through the proclamation of Paul and Barnabas. And in hearing the gospel, they had an opportunity to what? To know God, the, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, and have access to God by grace through faith in Jesus. It's work there testifying to the church in Antioch that God had done the most amazing thing. He had torn down all racial barriers, ethnic barriers, geographic, gender, socioeconomic. He comes in with the gospel, God did, and he destroys all these barriers, and he calls everyone everywhere to what? To know him through Christ, to repent and turn and be saved. And this is what happened. It was a glorious report. It was a successful mission, and there were many more to come. But I want you to recognize, and this will be our focus for our study today, this great report and this great work of God opening the doors did not come without work. Hard, intensive, costly, dangerous work by Paul and Barnabas and all who proclaimed the gospel. And that, my beloved, has been the story of the church for over 2,000 years. For over 2,000 years, God has been saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. His Holy Spirit opening doors by using who? People just like you. People just like us to bring the gospel to these places, to engage in this intensive work of proclaiming the gospel and building up the church, of proclaiming salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ outside the church and making disciples inside the church. Paul and Barnabas understood that was their call, that is their work. They understood the risk. They knew it was dangerous. And so that's why when they're in Derby, and I imagine in their flesh, they were longing to go back to Tarsus and Antioch where it was safe. But instead, they turn around and they said, let's go right back into the battlefield. Let's go back to those cities and back to those churches. And they, and they go in order to fortify. These are young churches uh, most of them don't even have pastors. B- believers that have gathered together, they've heard the gospel, they're saved, but they're not fortified. And so they go back to fortify these churches, to make them strong churches. And they do it in three ways, three basic church growth, church strengthening um, lessons here that I hope that we can hear and say, oh, we, we should do that too. I should do that too. Say that to yourself. Number one, they went back to strengthen the disciples. Number two, they went back to encourage the disciples. And number three, they went back to equip them. They wanted to make them strong. They wanted to encourage them. And they wanted to equip them to do the work of the ministry. And so we're no different, my beloved. We so desperately need one another. You need each other in order to grow in this faith. And so I want to take this same, I guess it would be a church growth plan, certainly not one you would hear much today, not in the Western world, not in the Western church, so that we can effectively grow in the faith too. So we can be not only the most effective witnesses for the gospel here in San Jose, but that we can persevere to the end because there's an eternal cost involved in all of this. So a theme for this sermon would be simply, simply this, you need the church and the church needs you. You need the church and the church needs you. So point number one, they, they went to strengthen the disciples. They went to make them strong. Now last week, if you were here, we had a chance to do some, some really good, somewhat deep Christology. We were talking about Jesus Christ, the God-man who, by becoming a man, he made, him, he made the Father known, and by dying as a man, he made access to the Father, and it was great, high theology that I hope you loved and you enjoyed, and you thought about all week. I know I did. This is not like that. This is a very, very practical sermon, which says, here are the things that you are called to do in Christ, and now go do them. 
So I want you to think and listen practically and then ask yourself, how am I engaged in this growth process? What am I doing and how am I blessing others? Okay? So think practically. Point number one, they went back to strengthen the disciples. So if you remember from last week, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas, they have to flee Antioch and Pisidia because they were being persecuted. They flee to Iconium. They have to flee Iconium. They make their way to Lystra. And Lystra remembers that rural area down in the, in the southeastern Galatian province. And so they're down there and they're preaching the gospel and, and they have that chance to heal the crippled man who was crippled from birth. And then everybody gets really excited and, they, and the, the whole crowd in Lystra says, oh, it's, it's Zeus and it's Hermes. And they believe that they are gods in the flesh. And Paul and Barnabas, they rent their clothes and they say, no, no, we're just men like you. Do not worship us. But here's the good news. God did become a man and they share the gospel and many are saved. We're told this, look at verse 19. In the midst of all this proclamation and healing and false worship by those in Lystra, Luke tells us in verse 19 that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Such hatred in the heart of the Jews who heard the gospel and rejected Christ that they traveled, listen, 100 miles. Now that's, that's a long way if you were to get in your car. If you said, you know, I'm going to drive to Sacramento to persecute someone I really don't like. Well, they didn't have cars, they didn't have highways, so it was a long trip. But they go 100 miles in order to try to put to death Paul and Barnabas. But they were unsuccessful because that was not God's plan for Paul or Barnabas. Look at verse 20. So Paul is outside the city. He's unconscious. He's not dead. And he wasn't raised from the dead. That's a, that's a bad hermeneutic, I think. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, those that were in the city of Lystra, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas down to Derby. So he's battered and bruised. I mean, you gotta love, you gotta love Paul. This guy, he knew he was in a fight. He's battered and bruised. He's stoned nearly to death. He gets up, he goes into the city, he spends the night, rests up, gets some food, gets some drink, and heads down to Derby and does what? He preaches the gospel. And then in Derby, more believers are saved. Now, again, at this point in time, I really believe that there was probably some temptation to make a beeline for Tarsus, thinking, that's my home. I got family there. I have friends there. I can go rest. And I imagine he probably got counsel, too. This is a good place to end this journey. Get to Tarsus. Get healed up. Go back to Antioch of Syria, and then let them give you your next papers, your next mission. But they don't. They turn around as faithful soldiers, and they go right back to where they had been kicked out of. Look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel in that city, that's Derby, and made many disciples there, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. The same places they had all been run out of by pain of death, the same place that Paul and Lystra had actually been stoned nearly to death, they return. Why? Because they're thrill seekers. I mean, where Paul and Barnabas is adrenaline junkies, you know, they couldn't jump out of an airplane, so they're going to go and they're going to put themselves in harm's way. No, they weren't thrill seekers, and they weren't eager to be stoned or to be killed. They returned because these were newly formed churches that needed to be strengthened. They understood that. They went to these churches that God had opened the door and saved many to make them strong. And so well, the first thing we see here in verse 22 is it says that they went back to strengthen the souls of the disciples. Now that's a, just a few words in the Greek also, but that word strengthen means to make firm, to establish firmly, to ground in deeply. Um, these are brand new believers. Now I don't know about you, but when I came to a saving grace in Christ, clueless. I mean, I was clueless. And I think I spent 10 years being clueless. So it takes a long time to grow in our understanding of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so they go back to, to do what with these brand new believers? To, to make disciples. They said, you know what, they know the Lord, they heard the gospel, they professed their faith, they were baptized, they were out of the church, now we need to grow them in their faith. We need to grow them deep in their faith. And so Paul and Barnabas were not doing new work, they were building upon the work that the Holy Spirit had already done through them. Strengthening what? The souls. That's the inner man, that's the seat of their affections and their thoughts and their dreams and their desires. They're strengthening these believers in these churches for the work of the gospel. Now, this strengthening was probably multifaceted. Certainly, Paul and Barnabas would have spent time praying with them and then teaching them how to pray. These were new believers. They didn't even know 
how to do that. They would have certainly spent time ministering with them, showing what a, what a godly life looks like in terms of serving one another. Um, I have no doubt they were doing some ethical teachings that Paul would later write about in the letters, teaching them how to be faithful husbands and wives in a, in a biblical marriage, teaching them how to raise their children. No doubt they talked about what corporate worship ought to look like. How are we to relate to the government? How are we to raise our children in the faith? All of these things, no doubt, they were engaged in this strengthening process. But we must remember the time at which this was taking place. If we're somewhere around 46, 47 A.D., the New Testament had not been written. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New. And they're in Gentile areas, so most of them probably didn't have the Old either. And so I have no doubt that the primary resource Paul and Barnabas engaged in for strengthening saints was the proclamation of God's word. The gospel expounded upon, teaching them about the creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration story, showing them the big picture of who God is, his character and nature, of who we are in the depth of our sin, going back to Romans chapter 1, and who Jesus Christ is as the God-man, the Son of God who came to give his life that we might be saved. He no doubt talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how now in the Spirit we have the power to overcome sin and love one another as Christ loves us. Establishing the Word of God, putting others above ourselves, no doubt talking about the kingdom work versus the work of this world. In other words, this ministry of strengthening was a word-centric ministry. In those churches, in those cities, there were lots of teachings, lots of Bible studies, lots of preaching, lots of community groups taking place that the Word of God might be heard, understood, and then lived out. You say, well, why, why, would, why would the Word of God be so central in the strengthening of these new churches? Why would that be the case? Because the Word of God, listen, has real power to make the Christian strong. The Word of God has real power to make the Christian strong. So if you know Christ... That word is there for you to become really strong as a Christian. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, I hope you remember this. The word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the heart born again by Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit has the word of God. God's given that to us to make our hearts strong in Christ to make our walks strong in Christ. And so to be strengthened daily by his living and active word is what would be expected of all believers, right? That we are going to have his word and we're going to feed on it and we're going to grow in it. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter four, verse four, remember he said, man does not live upon bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what? When Jesus said that, he actually meant it. He meant that the word of God is for the believer to be understood, lived out, consumed daily. In fact, I would argue that your strength as a Christian is contingent upon your daily consumption of God's word. Your strength as a Christian, if you feel weak, I would imagine you can trace that to the word not being, not having its central place in your life, either through your reading, your meditation. It's supposed to be something that we learn that we meditate on, that we memorize, that we think about, that we talk to people about all the time. The gospel and the word of God should be something that permeates your life. If you go a whole day or a whole week or a whole month and the word is just this peripheral thing that you hear a little bit on Sunday, then you are not going to be strong. You can't be because the word is there to make you strong. We want to know it so that we can do it, right? That's why the psalmist, when the psalmist was weak, remember what the psalmist cried out in Psalm 119, verse 28? The psalmist said, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to what? According to your word. Now, most of us have a Bible. If you don't, don't leave here without one. I'll give you one. Most of us have access to that word every day. We can open up our Bibles. We can turn on podcasts. You can gather in places like this. We have abundant access to it. So it's not getting to it it's actually being disciplined to receive it. I think for most of us is the problem. Uh, my youngest son, most of you do not know this, he, he uh, well, maybe you do, he went away to Davis um, and he joined the crew team. 
Um, we're still wondering why he's doing that, but he loves it. So um, for the last eight weeks, he's been training really hard, um, getting in good physical shape, and actually learning how to row with eight other people in a very narrow boat that you don't go side to side on. Um, in order for him to, to get really strong, in order to be an effective member of his team, he has to gain some, some strength, some body weight. And so he's eating and eating, and oh, is he eating, right? The understanding being this, without, for Joshua, without a high-protein carb diet, he's not going to gain the muscle mass that will give him the strength to be the member of the team that he wants to be. Um, I would argue this as a believer, that you must have a high daily intake of the word and spirit in your diet if you want to be the member of this team that God desires you to be. It must be a high consumption of God's word in the spirit for us to participate in the work of this team, and that is the church, right? This is our boat. We're all rowing together. We want to row effectively and efficiently and expeditiously for the glory of God. When you don't try to grow and get strong in the word, then you'll find yourself stumbling in the faith, and you'll find yourself probably engaging in sin that not only is, not disple- is displeasing to the Lord, but it makes you ineffective as a member of this body. Um, by not growing in the word, you know, when we don't grow in the word, obviously we suffer personally, but you also cause others to suffer. You say, well, how is that possible? Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, listen, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, let the word of God dwell in you richly, so that you what? May teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. In other words, the word of God is there for you to become strong and then you just take your strength and do what? Go teach others to be strong too. To teach and to admonish one another with all wisdom. So that's that's their growth plan for these early churches. Word-saturated, word-centric, Bible studies, worshiping, teaching, preaching, so they can grow strong in the word of God and then teach others to grow strong too. Now before I go on to the next point, I want you to ask yourself honestly, just ask yourself, are you daily growing in the word of God so that you can become a strong Christian? And are you doing that not only for your own well-being, but so that you can bless others by teaching and admonishing them with God's word? It's hard to teach that which you do not know. But how glorious if you say, I'm going to grow for my own well-being and I'm going to grow for my brothers and sisters so I can come alongside them and I can share, I'll have a word on my tongue and upon my mind when I see them to share with them, to encourage them or rebuke them or admonish them or whatever needs to happen in that situation. Ask yourself that. Are you striving to that end? We want to be a church that grows in our own strength and in our strengthening of one another. We want to be that church. We want to grow as disciples in the word. We also want to be a church, I hope, that encourages one another. And that's the second point. Point number two, Paul and Barnabas encouraged the disciples. Look at the latter part of verse 21. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And then what? Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So in addition to strengthening the church and making them strong by teaching them God's word, they had, they had to and they wanted to encourage them to press on to the very end. That word encouragement, you probably heard it mentioned here. It's parakaleo in the Greek. Um, and it actually comes from a root word, parakletos, which means legal advocate. Now that's a really interesting. How, how do we get encouragement and legal advocate coming together? Uh, this encouragement is not, the, it's not the, the soccer mom standing on the sideline cheering her daughter during the game saying, go, go, go. That's encouragement, but that's not the type of encouragement that we're talking about here. This encouragement would be more like you in a court of law and your lawyer saying to you, stay the course. This trial's hard, but stay the course because you're going to win. Right? A legal advocate telling you to press on in the midst of the trial because you're going to win. Now, we know that as Christians, that teaching from the Spirit through the Word is true for a couple of reasons. Number one, Christ has already won for you. Right? By paying for your sins upon the cross, you already win if you're in Christ. So that's the encouragement 
that comes from God and hopefully from one another. But that secondly, we know that Jesus is, is our legal advocate, right? He stands before the Father on our behalf, interceding, and he's going to receive anybody who comes to him in faith. Anyone who simply puts their trust in the Lord, he promises to save. And that means we must continue in the faith. There's a warning here uh, of, of great magnitude that I don't want us to miss. If you remember last week, um, I had Kirk read from John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? No one. No one makes it to the Father except through Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. So that means if you make a profession of faith and then you fall away and you, you no longer put your faith in Christ, you have no access to God the Father. You have no access to eternal life. He is the only way, and that's why there's this teaching of encouragement. This is not just encouragement, like, come on, you can do it. This is encouragement to life because that's what hangs in the balance. I've been here now over 25 years, and I've seen lots of souls, probably in the high hundreds now, that have come into this church, and they made a profession of faith, and they got baptized, and, and they would even become covenant members. And they said, we're going to covenant to walk this race with you. Um, many of those have actually turned back to the world. They haven't just left this local body. They've left the faith altogether. They've turned away from the Lord. And one of the things I've noticed over the past 25 years is there's a direct correlation between those who leave the faith and those who go through hardship. And those that I, that, that I know personally who are no longer pursuing Christ were going through a very difficult time in their life when they left this place and then left the Lord altogether. A particular couple that was very dear to us and they were engaged in the ministry, they were having marital strife real difficult issues in their marriage, but they wouldn't share that or talk about it or seek counsel or prayer from anybody in the church. And so they were going through this alone. Well, they ended up leaving the church, leaving this church. They ended up getting a divorce. Infidelity took place in the marriage. They got a divorce. And now at this point in time, neither of them are pursuing Jesus Christ. Now, if you had met them 15 years ago, you said, these people love the Lord. My goodness, they were engaged in, in great ministry. But what happened was, as they hid their sin, none of us could encourage them. We couldn't come alongside them. We couldn't edify them and pray for them or counsel them or rebuke them. We couldn't do any of those things because we were in the dark. Paul and Barnabas go back to these churches to encourage these new Christians to continue in the faith. Why? Because they know how hard it is. Look at verse 22, the latter part. Paul said it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is so much written on just that one half of that verse. I would argue that many Christians in the Western world enter the church with a false gospel and therefore they're shocked when trials come. Right? We hear a, we hear a gospel that calls us to come to God because God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life and everything's going to be good and the, the road's going to be smooth. And then we hit these, these bumps, and then we hit these big bumps, and life gets really difficult, and people leave because they're not, they weren't told from the beginning that there are costs with following Christ. Notice that they say we, Paul says we, not Paul and Barnabas, not the apostles, not missionaries, not pastors. He says we, every single Christian, must experience many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of God. Must. Not maybe, not one, but many. So uh, I, I don't really like this part of the sermon because that's saying that if I follow Jesus, I must experience many tribulations to get in. So what are you saying? That, that I have to go through that in order to be saved? No, and we gotta be really careful here. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that we must go through difficult times as believers in order to earn our stripes, right? That this is to secure your salvation. This is your rite of passage. you got to suffer. And if you suffer well for the gospel, then you get in. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this. If you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been brought out of the darkness and into the kingdom of light, and you are now a son or daughter of this king, it's going to be hard. If you are saved, it's going to be really hard for a few simple reasons. Number one, you're a child of the light now living in a dark world. Right? You're surrounded by darkness. Satan is against you. The world's against you. Your own flesh is against you. 
And then you better believe it's going to be a battle, and therefore we should expect tribulations in the midst of it. People, friends, family members, co-workers, doing everything they can to either derail you, to get you to, to renounce Christ, or minimally cause you to sin in such a way that your glory will be diminished, and you can't, they won't be able to see God clearly through you. I mean, my beloved, these Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they traveled 100 miles just to get to Paul and Barnabas. The attack's real. There's a second reason, though. I believe we must go through many trials because that's how God refines us. This is the refining process that God causes us to go through in preparation for heaven. In other words, your trials and your suffering, your hardship, it's preparing you for an eternal glory that what? That far outweighs them all. Romans chapter 5, Paul said this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, you know Paul's sufferings. He said, we rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and that hope does not fail. It doesn't fail. So when we suffer and yet continue in the faith in the midst of our suffering, we become what? We become more and more like Jesus. Right? You become more like Christ when you suffer in the faith. There was a, a, a sister that was with us for years. She is now with the Lord and this woman was such an encouragement to me. Um, her life was a story of hardship. She lost, her, she lost her year and a half old son, her oldest son, in an accident on the farm when a rooster pecked her son in the temple and he died, right? Not, not too many years later, her husband dies in a tragic accident and she's left as a widow with her daughter. Um, she remarries, but her second marriage was a hard marriage, a very hard marriage for her. This woman was so amazing. In the midst of all this, she battled breast cancer, lung cancer, a heart attack, and a stroke. Death surrounded her. She had to work into her 70s because her means were meager. And yet, you never saw her without a smile. There was a deep hope and a deep joy. She was one of the most humble, gracious, loving people I've ever known. Very, very simple. She had a sixth grade education. And you, if someone were to ask me, name a saint that impacted you, a great saint, it would be her. It'd be her. Why was she like that? Well, she suffered well in Christ. She went through suffering. She went through things that I've never experienced. And I wonder how well I would remain faithful in the midst of all that. And she did. She did. She grew deep in her faith. So we're going to suffer because we live in a fallen world. We're going to suffer because that's how God refines us. And I'll give you one more. We're going to suffer because that's a sign of assurance that when you suffer well in the faith and you remain faithful, it's how you know the Holy Spirit really dwells in you. First Peter chapter 4. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you. To test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And he says this, listen. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, we go through trials and suffering now and when we remain faithful to Christ in the midst of it, that's an assurance that we truly know the Lord so that when he comes again in all of his glory to do what? To judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom that has no end. Instead of you coming before him and hearing him say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because you've suffered and you've persisted in the faith, it's a means by which you can say, I really do know God. Why haven't I forsaken God? Why haven't I? I really do know him. Therefore, when he comes again in glory, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to call for the rocks to fall upon my head and cover me. I'm going to wait for him to call me to himself and say what? Well done, good and faithful servant. In the midst of all your trials, you stayed the course. You remained faithful. Your love for me was true. So there's assurance in us going through hardship. What a different way to approach it, my beloved. I want you to think about a really difficult thing you're going through right now and say, how different would it be if I thought about this in the context of, well, this is how it is in the fallen world. This is how God sharpens me and restores me and this is the way that I can know I really know the Lord because I'm going through this and I'm still faithful by his grace. So if we, if we know we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom, we must. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, only those who persevere to the end 
shall be saved. Now I hope that the weight of encouragement has its proper place in your heart and mind, right? If we must go through tribulations and only those who persevere to the end shall be saved, then how important is this encouragement to you? It's life and death. It's eternal in nature. You being encouraged and you rightly encouraging one another because what's at stake is not just a bad day or a bad week. What's at stake is eternal life. Those who persevere to the end shall be saved. And that's what, my beloved, makes our isolated, individualized, Western version of Christianity, I believe, so reprehensible. It's so reprehensible. And being part of a real, caring, one anothering body is so essential. Not optional, my beloved, according to the Word of God. You remember our study in Hebrews? Remember Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13? Remember that warning? The author said, exhort, that's parakaleo, same word, exhort, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that what? None of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the warning. And then verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confession firm. How long? To the end. To the end. There are dozens of ways that we can encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. There are dozens there are 33 to 46, depending upon how you designate a one another in command in the New Testament. We can pray for one another, right? We can come alongside one another. We can serve one another. Um, we can teach one another God's word. We can honor one another. We can speak the truth to one another in love and humility and grace. But when I was thinking about what, if I could pick out one today for us in our cultural moment and the Christianity that we live, which is a very strange somewhat ahistorical Christianity. If I could pick out one, it would be the literal rendering of the word encourage. Parakaleo, para means beside or close to, kind of like paralegal or paramedic, to come alongside. Parakaleo, so para is beside, and kaleo is to call or to call upon. So it literally means this, you calling upon someone, you coming alongside someone, getting up next close to someone. And so the best encouragement I would say for us today, in our cultural moment as a church, would be the literal rendering of encouragement. For us to have personal, physical proximity, being intimate one to another in the body of Christ. Not, not moving through life, listen, alone with a sprinkling of community, but moving through life in community with a sprinkling of being alone. Radically different in our cultural moment. You say, well, what would that possibly look like? Well, one thing it would look like, it, it would be more than gathering on a Sunday from 10.30 to 12.20, and that's the totality of your community. That would not be what uh, is being revealed here in Acts 14. It would be gathering and being present, intentionally present, and asking yourself before you gather, who can I encourage today? Who can I strengthen with the word today? Who can I speak to? Who can I speak God's word into today? as we gather and we pray and we eat and spend time together. It would be making time, I would argue, for our, our community groups that we meet every other week. Say, I'm gonna get to that and I'm gonna get to know these people because we're going over the sermon and I wanna help the word go in deeper for myself and for others. It would be being part of a discipleship group of some kind where you are meeting regularly to pray with people and confess your sins. It would certainly be opening up our homes, right, exercising Christian hospitality, and having people and receiving people, um, gathering for lunch, coffee, fellowship. It's kind of a horrible thing that I have to explain this, is it not? I mean, our culture is so anti-communal, we have to talk about what it means to be communal. Other cultures go, what are, you, what are you saying this for? Don't we all know this? We don't all know this. And we don't know it in the biblical sense. In other words, the, the best way, real simple, the best way you can encourage one another is to be present. Be in one another's life. One of the reasons that Christ became a man, that God came, because to be with us, right? He came down from heaven to be in the flesh with us. The phone calls are good, the texts are okay, the emails, eh, be present. Be with people. This couple that I described that ended up divorced and no longer following Christ, I know, I, I shouldn't say this, I believe strongly that had they been involved deeply in the relationships of this church that, and they had confessed that, there would have been opportunity for us to breathe life into it, to love them through it, and their marriage would have been sustained by God's grace. Paul and Barnabas go back in the flesh 
because they know how encouraging it is. Paul writes lots of letters, and they loved getting the letters, but how much better that he's actually there in the flesh. They knew that. They understood their very presence would be encouraging to them. My beloved, listen, with all your might, it's no different for you. So I'm not an apostle. I'm I'm not Paul, I'm not Barnabas, no. But you are a member of the body of Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are a follower of Jesus. Your physical presence, whether you know it or not, brings great encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your physical presence. Even if you just showed up, you said, I'm I'm having a bad day, I don't wanna talk. Even if you just showed up, you being present with other believers is encouraging. You've experienced this, I hope, on Sunday mornings when we gather that there's great encouragement in this. You probably experienced that when you've been as well. We had a, uh, we had, we combined our groups for numbers purposes and we had, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 around your table, mom, on Wednesday night. It was such an amazing night. It was like Thanksgiving again, but on a Wednesday and it was after Thanksgiving and we were all just talking and eating and laughing and studying and it was just a beautiful time and I thought, how blessed we are to be able to do that here still. How blessed we are. All right, so they wanted to strengthen them. They wanted to encourage them, and I, I want to give you one more. Uh, they, they wanted to equip them. They wanted to equip them. You say, well, I, I don't see this from the passage. It's in verse 23. They wanted to equip these churches by appointing elders, pastors. It's terms used synonymous in the New Testament. Look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, so plurality of elders in every local church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them, the churches, to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom these churches had put their faith, he's the head of the church, right? It's he died for the church. He's the great shepherd. He's the groom. The church is the bride. And that means, listen, every single Christian, every pastor, every deacon, every member, every ministry leader, every missionary, every church planter, every evangelist serves him. He's the head. He's the head of his church. And according to his wisdom, Jesus Christ decreed for his local churches to have sinful, fallen, believing men that were mature enough in the faith to be under shepherds over his local body. Fallen, sinful men, mature enough in the faith to pastor, to love, to oversee, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In each of these locations, now did you notice that? This is important. Here's a little ecclesiology for you. What's the church supposed to look like? It's not one pastor over multiple churches, i.e. a bishop or a pope. We don't see that here. And it's not one super senior pastor over that local church. It's a plurality of elders. It's multiple pastors per local church. And it is the model that we see in the book of Acts. And Paul will actually develop and articulate in letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, and to Titus in Titus chapter 1. It is a plurality of elders. And that's where we get that whole idea of having multiple elders. It means two or more. Men who are qualified scripturally to oversee and to pastor a local church. He said, well, why, why does it have to be more than one? Why can't we have one superstar pastor over a mega church or maybe multiple churches? Why can't we have that? Several reasons. Number one, pastors are sinful men who need to be held accountable. Well, who better to hold another pastor accountable than another pastor or pastor saying, I love you, brother, but you're, we're a little off track here. So certainly for accountability, Um, we've seen too many churches with a single pastor run roughshod over the body of Christ. Again, that's the bride of Christ. So for the pastor's protection and for the church's protection. Uh, A second reason, I believe, would be for the diversity of gifts. Right? I mean, even the most gifted person is very limited in their gifts. So if you get three or four or five elders together that are all gifted, they are gifted in multiple ways to bless the body and grow them even more. I think a third way is, is simple wisdom, right? The proverb says what? There is wisdom in the counsel of many. And so you have a few elders making decisions on behalf of the church. You want them to have a collective wisdom. I have for years um, because we've always been limited and at times I did not have other elders. I, I, <laughs> there are pastors, they know us. I call them, I'm like, hey, I need to talk to you. And I give them the, here's what's going on. Tell me, talk to me, talk to me. And so there's wisdom in the counsel of many. But I I think one of the major reasons 
and, and this will go back to our point of equipping, is that the more pastors, the more true elders you have in a local church, the better able they are to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. Right? More pastors, more equipping, more work being done. A, a, a pastor, you probably know this, they, they wear multiple hats. Um, they're commanded from the Bible to preach, teach, and pray. And that's the, the fundamental job to do. Um, in addition to that, they're, they're called to oversee the flock, uh, to make sure that no heretical teaching or wolves get in and try to devour the sheep, to make sure that the che- sheep are actually well cared for. They're supposed to, to have a right vision for that local church and doing ministry in that area. How do we share the gospel and how do we make disciples? They're, they're responsible for distributing the funds and promoting associations with other like-minded churches. But a major piece that we don't think of and the scriptures talk about it over and over again, is the responsibility of the elders and pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for you to do ministry work. Now, in our, in our corporate church model today, it's top-heavy. We have pastors and ministry leaders, and we hire on big staffs, and you get 90% of the church work is done by hired professionals and 10% done by the body of Christ. That's not the biblical model. It's not even remotely close to the biblical model. The biblical model is for hopefully mature, well-trained elders harnessing the power, listen, of the Holy Spirit that dwells in every single believer in that church. And any pastor or group of elders that think that they have the ability to exercise more power in Christ than the body of Christ should step down from that position because the power is in the church through Christ in the Spirit. And so... Pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We are to strengthen you, encourage you, and equip you to do the work of ministry. You say, what are you saying? That I'm supposed to be a minister? I thought you were the minister. We're all ministers. What are you saying? That I'm supposed to be working for the kingdom too? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the great evangelical mantra that Luther grabbed onto, were saved by God's grace through faith, not as a result of works. We always read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we don't read verse 10. And yet 10 is the completion of verses 8 and 9. Let me read it to you. Listen with all your might. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You say, I know that. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there's nothing you do, there's no work you do to be saved. That's God's grace placed upon you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, ready? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so do you see the perfect balance in Ephesians chapter two? You're saved by grace through faith. You do nothing. There's nothing you can do. No work, no religion, no sacrifice. No more obligation. Nothing you can do to be saved. And when you are saved, you become his workmanship to what? Not only to do work, good work for the kingdom, but work according to this that he prepared before the foundations of the world, beforehand for you to walk in them. This, my beloved, is so amazing that you've been Saved by grace through faith, forgiven of your sins, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, given the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, brought into the kingdom, not only as a citizen, but as a son or daughter. And then God says to you, in light of all this great work that my son has done for you, and in light of all the love that I poured out on you, now serve me in love. Now what? Now work. So work for you to do that was prepared beforehand. So the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas to do the work of ministry. Hmm? And they did it. They engaged in it. The Holy Spirit has set you apart for the work of ministry. Are you doing it? Are you engaged in the work that God has called you to do? Not the work for the pastors where Christians will come and sit Sunday after Sunday and listen, but the work of the church, the specific gifting that God has made for you in order to work in his kingdom. Two chapters later in Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus, we're told this, Jesus gave the church shepherds and teachers to the church, listen, to equip 
for building up the body of Christ. Did you hear that? That's the model. That's it. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders to equip the church, to harness the power of the church, to do the magnificent work of proclaiming the gospel and making the disciples. That's our job as a church. Not a few professionals hired and not each of us running around independently doing our own thing, but the church collective coming together, exercising the gifts God has given us together to have a tremendous impact for the kingdom here in this place. And, and that's what we're called to do. Each and every one of you has been brought to this place and equipped by God to serve here at this point in time. Maybe not next week and maybe not next year, but today the answer is yes. Most of you remember when the Jews were returning from the Babylonian captivity. Remember they made it back to the city and the temple's in ruin and their houses are in ruin and the wall's destroyed. And so Nehemiah says, we've, we've got to shore up this city. We've got to secure this city. And it's, it's probably one of the more encouraging passages in the post-exile movement in Nehemiah chapter 3 and Nehemiah chapter 4. He divides the wall up into 40 sections and he calls families and groups of families to, to divide up and they're going to work collectively together as a people to rebuild this wall. In fact, they work so effectively and so quickly together that all the enemies of the Jewish people become alarmed, all the non-Jews who were living there. This is what we're told in Nehemiah chapter 4. When the enemies of God heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem and the walls were going forward, they were very angry and they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. My beloved, I think that we're going to really know that we are working well together as a church when we're all using our gifts for the glory of God here, when this community starts to get really mad at us for the gospel work that's taking place, when this kingdom work begins to push out of this place and we see the Sanballats and the enemies of Christ come against us, what a glorious thing that would be. We want to shut that church down because the kingdom is going out. I pray that happens. I do. If you're a Christian, if you haven't been told this, you're a full-time minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a full-time minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been called by God, and you've been specifically equipped by God to use what God has given you to do work here in this place at this point in time, alongside your brothers and sisters, not alone, but with each other, all for the glory of God. Now, it's through the teaching and preaching and prayer, the primary means by which, why have you gathered here this morning? He said, I'm here to worship God. Why, why is he preaching this morning? One of the primary means by which God uses for his church to be strengthened, encouraged, and equipped is the preaching of God's word. It's the preaching of it. Now that, that requires you to hear it and then live in accordance with it by the power of the Spirit. It doesn't do me any good week after week to study and pray and preach and you hear and go, walk out that door and someone says to you 15 minutes later at lunch, what are you preaching about? You say, I, I really don't know. Did you hear it? Yeah, I heard it. Well, that's not good. Right? We want to hear and receive. Right? This, is, this is an equipping process right now. Right? So you've already been equipped. She so said, well, I, I know from this sermon that I'm, I'm supposed to be strengthened in the Lord by God's word and strengthen others and I'm, I'm supposed to be encouraged and encourage others and, and I'm supposed to know what my gifts are and start using them. Very simple. Very simple. That should be your desire too, my beloved. Not just knowing how to live in Christ, but wanting to live in Christ. And if I, if I would argue that one of my greatest responsibilities and blessings is to cultivate that desire in you, not just to tell you what the scriptures call you to do, but cultivate that desire for you to actually do it. You say, well, well how does that happen? I'll, I'll tell you, the way that you become strong was through Christ becoming weak, right? This God-man came down from heaven. I mean, he is, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, but he came down from heaven to get up close to you, that he might come alongside you, that he might ascend that cross and pay for your sins so that you might actually be saved. We're actually told that he emptied himself and became a man and then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ became ultimately weak, that we might be made alive in him and become strong in him, right? He did this great work to save us and make us strong. You should want to serve him in this way because Jesus, listen, Jesus remained faithful all the way into that grave. 
He came, he was born, he lived, and he remained faithful all the way to that last breath. You know what that means? If you're in Christ, that means there's no grave for you. You see, what does that mean? When I die, I'm not, no, you, you will, but that's not your end. There's no death for you. Do you know that? If you're in Christ, there's no death. You're going to move from one place to the other, but there's no death because sin does not bind you anymore. Now, my beloved, I, I, I probably could say a lot of things that might encourage you. That has to be at the top. You say, what, what, when I think about my life and the purpose of my life and the end of my life, what is that end? It's not death. There's no more encouraging word that it's not death, it's life, and it's eternal life with God in Christ. Christ entered that grave so that you could be set free from it. So there's no power of the grave over you. You should want to serve him, my beloved. Listen, because he has already equipped you. If you are saved by grace through faith in Christ, you are a son or daughter, you're in the kingdom. You're already equipped. He's for your sins in full. He's granted to you his perfect righteousness. And therefore, he's given you the ability to not only live a holy life as he is holy, but he gave us the paraclete, the eternal Holy Spirit to dwell in us now and forever. In my younger days, most of you know I used to fly. And I remember, I remember a slogan that troubled me then, it troubles me even more now. And the slogan was this, those who fly solo have the strongest wings. Those who fly solo have the strongest wings. That's a very romantic idea. You flying solo, obviously pertaining to the ability to fly. But it is, it is a horrible saying when it comes to spiritual combat or aerial combat for that matter. Flying solo does not make us strong. Most of you probably know this. During World War II, one of the, you know, the B-17 bombers, one of the tactics they used, they would actually get together. And there were several different tactical ways to fight. One was called the wedge or the flying wedge. And they would, have, they would take 54 B-17 bombers and they would, they would put them in the shape of, a, of an arrowhead at three different levels. You had a middle, a top, a top and a bottom. And they would fly in formation. And from, from end to end, the width was about 1.3 miles of aircraft. And then about a, a third of a mile from the front to the back. And one of the things they realized that flying in this formation made it very, very difficult for enemy aircraft to shoot them down. So more planes got over their target and got back safely to Great Britain by using this tactic. What did they not do? They didn't fly alone. They didn't fly alone because when that B-17, when one was actually an engine out and they became by themselves, well, then they were easy attack and usually picked off. Flying solo spiritually, listen, it may be popular in the Western church, but it is utterly foolish to fly alone. The enemy knows that if he can get you alone and get you discouraged and get you down at that dark place, you might be one step away from walking away from Christ. He knows that. It is my prayer, my beloved, that you would this morning see you need to be encouraged, strengthened, and equipped by your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have that biblical mandate to one another, and you need to see your essential role in strengthening, encouraging, and equipping others here. It is a matter of life and death. It is no small matter for us. I pray that like Paul and Barnabas, that we be willing to take major risks, to sacrifice time and money and energies and work really, really hard for the glory of God here in this place. We're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, but in being saved, you are commissioned to work. And so I'll close with this. Serve Christ by working hard. Your moments from the grave, you know that. I don't care how young you are, you're steps away from the grave. Until you get there, work with all your might out of your love for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be gracious with us right now as a church and eradicate all the, the foolish Western individualized teaching that's made its way in. <clears throat> Instead, Lord, I pray that you would enable us 
to see how desperately we need each other to be strengthened and to strengthen, to be encouraged and to encourage and to be equipped and to equip others. We're so thankful that you bring us into communities just like this, that we can experience what we see happening here in Acts 14. And that is not just people being saved by grace, but being grounded in this faith, growing deep in their discipleship and their love of Christ so that we can, Lord, not just individually but collectively, we can as one body work really hard for him. He's so worthy of it. He gave up everything so that we might be brought in to your kingdom. I ask, Lord, that with the time that we have, each of us, that we would um, we'd want to serve, that you would cause us to want to serve, that you'd put that into our hearts and minds. We'd be smart about seeing how you want to serve and that we would want to. And then you would ignite this church with the collective work of the saints here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church that we might bring that gospel to those outside of this church who do not, you know, and that we might grow in our faith too. I ask that you would do this for the blessing of my brothers and sisters, for the blessing of me, and for your own glory. In Christ's name, amen.